Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Today's episode has been sponsored by Serial Box. Serial Box delivers addictive book content in short listen or read installments designed to fit into today's fast-paced mobile lifestyle. Switch between listening and reading with a single click, picking up right where you left off. Learn more at SerialBox.com, S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com. I'm thrilled to be interviewing Susan Conley today. Susan is a self-described Mainer, someone from Maine who has written four books, including a memoir called The Foremost Good Fortune, a novel, Paris Was the Place, and a photography book called Stop, Here is the Place. Her latest novel, Elsie Come Home, was recently selected by O, the Oprah magazine, as one of the 10 newly released books that will give you an excuse to stay indoors this winter. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Paris Review, and other publications. A fellowship recipient from the McDowell Colony, the Breadloaf Writers Conference, and others, Susan is on the faculty at the University of Southern Maine and co-founded The Telling Room, a creative writing lab for kids. So welcome, Susan. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Oh, it's terrific to be here. So Elsie Come Home is an amazing novel. Can you tell listeners a little bit about what it's about? Yeah, Elsie Come Home is about this sort of secret that I started to realize many women I knew were carrying, which was that they couldn't be amazing mothers and have these amazing careers without compromising something. And Elsie starts to unravel and her husband suggests that she go away to this so-called retreat in the mountains in China and try to get it together. And it's really about her sort of coming to terms with her own guilt and creativity. Hmm. And how did you end up setting it in China? I mean, I know you've spent a bunch of time in China. Is that how you came up with this idea to, to put it there? Yeah. I've been saying on book tour that I always seem to want to get Americans out of America <laughs> and sort of push them into corners and challenge them and sort of subvert all these sort of expectations they have about the world. So because Elsie was already finding things untenable in her home life, China was a really good backdrop for her because it's so chaotic and amazing and wonderful and vexing as a place to live, I think, particularly for Westerners. And I had lived there. I'd lived there for almost three years and I did go on something similar to what Elsie went on. I did go up into the mountains. I often say this is not an autobiographical novel because it's really not. But I had a moment on the mountain in the dark after a day of silence at the retreat where I thought, okay, this will be my next novel. Hmm. That's amazing. What propelled you to go on the retreat? Was it anything related to what Elsie was going through? (laughs) (laughs) Just Um, to to really get it out there early in the conversation? Yeah, right. (laughs) Just to bare my soul. Yeah, please go for it. (laughs) (laughs) We've we've known each other for five minutes. I think it's time. (laughs) To tell all. To tell all. I was one of those sort of quasi yoga people. I was trying to find my way in Beijing and I had met this amazing teacher who had announced she was going up to the mountains and, you know, everything about living in China for me with really young boys was about taking risks. And I just said, what the hell? Let's go. (laughs) And I think that the part of Elsie, that would be the closest to me would be this sense of what the hell am I doing here? I'm not a yogi. Oh my God, someone get me a taxi. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, it was fairly transformative. So yeah, the yoga retreat was about taking some risks. And also I did really want to get, I wanted to get stronger. You know, I I did want to go get better at yoga. Hmm. 
So one of the most fascinating parts of the book for me is how you showed the effects of Elsie's alcoholism, right? But you did it in such a subtle way. So the reader had to slowly kind of figure it out because it's all from the point of view of Elsie, the mom herself, and she hasn't really admitted she has a problem. So I love how you did that. It was almost as if Elsie was writing in a journal and and we're just hearing about it later. So tell me more about how you structured it that way. Mm, Yeah, thank you for for going there. That was a really big breakthrough for the novel when I realized that Elsie was going to be giving us this sort of very frank, in her mind, candid kind of accounting, really. She was accounting for her life. And she had this guy in Beijing who she, quote unquote, paid to ask her questions. Mm -hmm. Um, She found this therapist. And those are rare. they, They certainly were when I was there sort of Western trained, quote unquote, therapists, but she found one, you know, I knew of maybe a few that were there and he was pretty tough with her and basically said, guilt, get over it. You don't have time for that now. And asked her to do this reckoning on on the page. And she's this wildly acclaimed painter. She'd never written before. And she sort of teaches us or tells us when she's writing the novel that she's, she's not good at this. She doesn't know how to write. She's not used to getting to include everything. And we can see t- to your point that she's kind of hiding stuff or she's hiding stuff from herself. And I wanted her to try to kind of explain or contextualize her drinking for a while. So yeah, so the reader, it would kind of creep up on the reader and then have her kind of I think her transgression, she has a transgression, I think. There's one that really catalyzes her husband to say, let's go, let's go try to change things for you. But I guess I won't give that away right now. I hope I didn't give anything away, but I thought that was one of the main No. no. I can take it out. <laughs> no. Okay, uh-uh. all right. No, not at all. So a big influencing event in Elsie's life is the loss that she suffered early in her own life, and I won't give that away, but it sort of isn't until she comes to terms with it that she can move forward. So I was wondering if you've seen this sort of real-life effect of a loss like this for yourself or for someone close to you, or if you just did this as some sort of literary device for Elsie. Mm, yeah, you're picking up on all the, the good stuff. You're picking up <laughs> on the <laughs> sort of true engines of the book. That I call it the legacy of grief. Mm. And I think many of the people I love carry that legacy. Many families I know, like the constellation of the family can have a legacy of grief around it. And I certainly have loved ones who carry that legacy. Mm -hmm. And it came to a point for me where I just really wanted to explore it. And so I gave that to Elsie. And I do think it shifts and shapes lives entirely. And I I showed the book to some of the people who are, you know, very affected by grief. And they were so supportive of the book. And that really gave me more permission Mm -hmm. to keep going in that direction. Yeah. I find you can, I mean, I had a period of time when I went through a lot of loss in my life and I feel that I can now almost sniff out people who have the same sensibility because of loss that they've had. Do you know what I mean? I feel like once you've gone gone through loss, there's just a new outlook on life and you can sort of see it in someone even as you're just chatting with them like, oh, okay. You know, you get it. It's like you get the plot almost. (laughs) Yeah, that's so well said. No, that's, that's it. Yeah, that's really it. You know, I'll also share, because here I will really tell all, (laughs) 
I did have cancer when I was quite young, when I was 40, and my kids were very young. And I think that part of me writing deeply into Elsie's grief was some kind of catharsis projection of the grief I felt had I lost, you know, had I not been able to watch my kids grow up. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely was orbiting grief when I was in China. And, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty about my prognosis and the kids were so young. And I definitely think that sits over the book. And I haven't actually articulated that until now. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for doing so now. I'm really sorry, obviously, to hear about your cancer diagnosis. I'm so sorry you went through that. But it it sort of explains to me some of the context now of, I don't know, how you got to that so well. It's like you really got the reader to feel all that. So maybe that's where, Mm. I don't know, I think. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I think to your really good point, if you've known grief and trauma, it it kind of informs everything about how you live after that. So, you know, delving into Elsie's grief was scarily easy for me, Mm -hmm. I guess I would say. And, you know, I'm also here to say I'm on the other side of that really immediate fear and grief. And maybe that's why I also could write the book. I wanted to give her, I gave Elsie a really manageable illness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if you realized or noticed, you know, it's a thyroid condition. Yes, it's manageable. Uh, yep. But I wanted her to just have that little hiccup, that little sort of vulnerability hit that sickness can give people because mm-hmm. I just have, I'm also fascinated by how many people struggle, right? With some kind of illness or disease and they just manage it and they yep. just keep going. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to give her that as well. And you also did that when one of Elsie's daughter has a little health scare towards the end of the book. And you wrote, when you're in the hospital with a small girl, everything becomes clear. It really does. Right. And it's like the same thing, right? Like everything else just stops and what you, all the important stuff just yeah. comes to the front. So I love how you, you wove that in through in so many different ways. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you're right. That scene is so key to the whole book in a way, isn't it? That's when she starts to have some clarity and yeah yeah and you also another thing you did that I really liked can you tell I really enjoyed this book (laughs) (laughs) so Elsie you know she struggles to find the balance between her painting right her professional life and her children and they seem to come from the same place inside her so she feels in a way she can't do both so you wrote what I will say is that I couldn't understand how to be obsessed with my children and obsessed with my painting at the same time I thought both called for obsession and then later you say it was my sickness in a way not to be in the painting when I was painting and not to be with the girls when I was with the girls. So tell me more about that. And I was also wondering if you felt that way with your writing. Mm. I think that what you just read is really the most resonant, important. Those are the two most important lines in the whole book. I mean, those were the kernel, the seed of the book. Those feel so true to me when you read them out loud. And I can't tell you how many women I know who've read the book sort of quote those lines back to me or write those lines to me. And they don't have to be artists. They're just women, you know, having all kinds of varied careers. Mm-hmm. And that's really the secret that I was talking about when you asked me what this book is about. It's that obsession and not being able to really be obsessed with both. And that does ring really true to my life. I mean, I was thinking just yesterday we had a snow day in Portland, Maine. I love snow days. I have high schoolers. I still love snow days. But (laughs) what happened was I had, you know, I, I have another novel to deliver to my editor. And, you know, 
I wiped that day. Like there was going to be no creativity. The day was gone Mm -hmm. once we had the snow day because, and I I kind of articulated this to myself as I got ready for the day was the, and there's a word else uses for it, which is recklessness, the recklessness, the obsessive quality of hopefully giving yourself over to something other than your kids. Mm -hmm. That is gone. The minute your kids are home on a snow day. (laughs) And I think it's really just this incredible high wire act that so many women do. And I know we hear it over and over, but it doesn't go away. This sense of parceling out the day, parceling out the hours and wanting to be fully with our children, you know, fully giving of ourselves and then also fully giving to our ambitions and It's really a hard, hard thing to figure out for, you know, and this cuts across class and race. This is about the fact that we don't have any good childcare in America. Mm -hmm. You know, we could go on and on about how much I think that it becomes unfortunately gendered Mm -hmm. in a lot of households, whether they're like heteronormative households or not. It's like, who's the emotional hub? Whoever's the emotional hub is also probably trying to work and it's really hard. Yeah, that's very yeah. well said. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I'm sorry to have quoted the same lines to everybody quotes, but it was really, I mean, I felt like those had flashing lights around them when I was reading. No, I'm like, that makes me so happy that you quoted those because that's really the essence of the book. And I didn't realize how many women, you know, I knew it. I, I must have known it intuitively or I wouldn't have written the book, but how many women are sort of like, yep, there, that's it. Yeah. How do we do this? Yeah. Or we could explore it further and say, how many women tamp down their ambitions and their obsessions? Mm-hmm. You know? Well, it's like, I don't know. It's like if you have a piece of pie, if you have like a pie slice, I feel like as soon as you have the kids, they like take up everything, right? Like everything else becomes just this one tiny little slice. So how do you gradually, you know, take back more of that maybe as they get older or, but I think the going from pursuing whatever you were doing to just sort of having your brain fill with the need to take care of these kids, which is a pleasure, right? I mean, in, in a way that's like, I mean, it's like why you have kids, right? Like you don't mind it at first, right. but then it creeps right. up on you. So anyway, I'm sorry for right. talking so much. about. Anyway. No, it's a pleasure. And it's also, I mean, it's so many things. It's also, oh, these children need to survive. Exactly. <laughs> I'm yes. responsible. And then it be, this becomes kind of meta because you right now are following this whole wonderful kind of creative calling to do this amazing podcast about moms who don't have time to read <laughs> while you're a mom who doesn't have time to read. It's <laughs> really interesting to me. <laughs> right. But, you know, now that I've like found the time somehow to put this back into my life, I'm being such a better mom. I mean, I miss this. Uh, I mean, I missed it so much. And I just couldn't figure out a way to do what I, I just couldn't figure it out before how to make it all work. And now, you know, I do the podcast, but you know, I just went to my kid's school assembly and, you know, I'm at my desk and then I, you know, I don't know. I think it's like a constant shifting struggle to find a way to fit it in. and uh, Absolutely. Yeah, that's I'm it. Sure. And so cool that you're doing it again. Oh, it's thank probably, you. I mean, it's so cool. I'm thinking that what it's really about, it's the figuring it out. And I think what Elsie learns and what she's talking about, because I learned a lot from her because she was so blisteringly honest. Mm-hmm. I really had to kind of let her talk. Once she started talking, I realized she was going to say some stuff that 
I was going to be uncomfortable with because of its candor. And I was just going to let her go. But she has to forgive herself, mm-hmm. you know? Yep. And that is a big lesson, I think, for a lot of us, you know, myself included. It's the prioritizing too, right? Like, do I have to do it now or could this wait? I mean, I feel like when you talked about Elsie's daughter, Myla's separation anxiety in the book, I'm just going to read right. this little passage, but it's, it totally speaks to this, right? Like, is it worth it? Anyway, you, you wrote, it got so, and Elsie's talking about her, her daughter, Myla here. It got so that she'd ask me every morning if I was going out. And when I was honest and told her, yes, I was, it made things worse because she'd perseverate on my leaving. Then I tried not telling her I was leaving until I walked out the door and she'd shriek and throw herself at me so violently, I wanted to lie down on the floor with her and cry. I know it's not uncommon for children to fixate on a parent like this for a time, and it's better now, and I can see it more clearly. But I wonder, what was so important about going out back then that I couldn't stay home? Like, that was so awesome. I mean, every every parent, you know, has dealt with this. I mean, I assume. I mean, I've certainly dealt with this so much with the separation anxiety and the kids not wanting you to go. And I even now, like, look back with my big kids are almost 12, and I'm like, why did I make them have those tantrums, you know? Like, why, you know, was it worth it? On the other hand, you know, I can't have my kids hold me hostage, right? That's not good. So anyway, I I loved that. I know. I know. It's amazing the, what the, the, the shifting vantage point does for it. Yeah, and I really wanted to, everything for Elsie in the novel is a, just a little bit extreme. You know, she's pushed to extremes so that we can see these things that we're all going through amplified. Mm-hmm. I remember my editor, my beloved editor at Knopf said, um, are we worried about Myla? Does she have a problem? Does she have a condition? You know, should, should they be getting like help? Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, sorry. It's very normal. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that you're, you're leading me to also this sort of feeling I had around the writing of the book, which was children struggle. They have these obsessive patches. They go through these phases and I wanted to normalize it a little. I wanted to like honor and celebrate the wonderful quirkiness of children Mm -hmm. because I do not know a mother whose child isn't doing something like wildly idiosyncratic and like crazy in that given (laughs) week. Right. Yep. And I think we all think everyone else is, you know, leading this very, very like quotidian life and we're the ones that are weird, but no, you know, (laughs) and Myla just keeps reminding everyone how like sort of audacious kids can be, I think, and odd and wonderful. It always helps when you read something and recognize that something that you struggle with in your own life is like, oh, someone else is having this problem too. (laughs) So tell me a little more about your process of writing. Like when do you write, when did you write this book? When do you usually write? Do you start with outlines? Like tell me about how how you do it. Mm. Well, this novel, the process will take us back to your first question, which sort of how did you come to write this novel? What was the idea for this novel? So when I was at this wildly rustic yoga retreat, which is a stretch to even call it a yoga retreat in Beijing. It was, we were really on a little forgotten mountain and there really wasn't very much electricity and it couldn't have been more austere. And I had this little notebook in my (laughs) room and I wrote some just quick little stream of conscious scene about what was happening. And I kept those for the better part of 10 years, the way writers hoard we hoard our, our material <laughs> or we keep it. And I would just sort of be over on the side. And I, I would say, cause I would, you know, you're often asked what's your next project. And I would say, I think I'm writing about expats in this kind of mashup 
on a mountain in Beijing. But I thought it was going to be a triptych of three different strong women, and they were each going to speak. You know, and I thought it would be Tasman and and May and Elsie. They are three characters in the book, but Elsie took over, mm-hmm. and then when she took over, it, sh- it the whole thing just really opened up. I write in the morning. I love to write and go from like the dream world right into the writing, which is really hard when you have children. <laughs> so I often tell all my grad students and anyone I can that you have to banish the electronics, banish all sort of contact with the outside world, except the like providing perhaps of the breakfast or the help of getting the children off. My kids walk to school and then like go right to the desk, go right back to the dream world, imagination world. So if I get too caught up in, you know, what I might call like the secular world, I'm totally, you know, dead for the day. No writing will happen. (laughs) And I'm not a night person at all in terms of creativity. So it's morning for me. It's like gold. Yeah. And how long did it take to write this book? You know, this book in some ways happened really fast. It's a, as a kind reviewers have called it, a slim novel. (laughs) I love that phrase. It's a slim novel. I wanted it to be short and pack a punch. Mm -hmm. I wanted it to move really fast, seven days on a mountain. It didn't take probably more than a year to write. All told, you know, I did I did move it from third person in the voices of those three women into Elsie's voice. So that mm. took a whole nother iteration. Yeah. Interesting. And then, yeah. And what? I think after, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I think I don't really know what else I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to just ask what your what the book that you referenced earlier is about, your next book. Oh, in, in some ways, it, it feels like a sequel right now as we're talking. Its working title is How to Talk to Wolves, and it is coming out with Knopf's probably in 21. And it is a novel about a mother who is raising teenage boys in Maine on an island. And she comes, It's they come from a fishing family, fishing community. This is a world I grew up in, I know really well, and I'm really excited to shift my gaze fully to Maine. I haven't written, you know, Elsie kind of gets me halfway to Maine because in the novel she is from Maine. And I find that as I've aged, I have a lot more to say about Maine and the changing Maine. And I'm finally able to not take the reader out of America. You know, I, I feel like I'm able to kind of stay calmer and more patient here in Maine and say the things I want to say about class and culture in Maine. I, I think I can do it in Maine. And I, I actually have a draft of that novel. And it's actually, on a good day, it's a really comedic novel because it's really comedic to live with teenage boys. <laughs> it has to be funny. And one of the boys goes off the rails and the father becomes very injured and isn't really able to be part of the family. And so it's Again, very much about a woman and her strength and her power and her kind of reckoning with herself as a mother. This woman is a wildly acclaimed rock musician videographer. Mm. And she has gotten to know, like, I'm having a lot of fun with it because she has been traveling the world, really spending time with some of the great women musicians of our time. And then she ha- she's called back to Maine for a reason. And so it's it's about shifting ambitions, shifting scope of your life as a woman. It's awesome. I can't wait to read that. (laughs) Do you have any advice to aspiring authors out there? Ah, let's see. 
Let me see. Yes. <laughs> so I teach in this grad program called Stone Coast and it's here in Portland and I love it. I think I've been there for six years and I have this, I say to my students, every semester I come up with this new mantra for my seminar talk because I always give a seminar sort of talk on something every semester. And I used to think that it was about sentences. If I could only get my students to understand the beauty of sentences and, and sort of language. And then I would say it's about mining setting. And then I would give talks on pace and temporality. And, you know, what I really think it's about and what I would want to encourage all writers to do is to trust yourself to create unique singular voices on the page because the voices have to kind of levitate off the page and speak to the reader. And, you know, we can all talk about craft till the cows come home, but it's about actually trusting this like emotional current that's carrying you to, to write and giving it to a character. So they have this, this voice. How's that? I'll take it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks for writing your beautiful novel. And I can't wait to read your next one. Oh, thank you, Zibby. Thank you for what you're doing. I love the podcast. Thank um, you. And it's been a great treat to talk to you. Oh, thanks so much. I really appreciate that. Okay. Bye. Take care. Take care. I'll, I'll keep following. Oh, and please do. Thank you. I will. <laughs> Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. Today's episode was sponsored by Serial Box, S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com, SerialBox.com, delivering addictive book content in short listen or read installments. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Mm-hmm.